Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bécher, meaning digger. Welcome along. It is yet another edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast. We're rapidly approaching 500 editions now of the Cricket Badger Pod. So uh, I'm going to try and plan something a little bit special for episode number 500. We'll see what that comes of. But uh, obviously, if you've been, unless you've been living under a rock over the last week, um, you'll know all about Azim Rafiq's um, testimony to the um, DCMS Select Committee, all about Yorkshire, all about the game in general, all about UK cricket and ECB have just met, I think, this afternoon and come out with a statement to say they unreservedly apologise to Azim and they're also going to basically reconvene, I think, that meeting next week to make some tangible decisions on how to tackle racism in cricket. But what was mentioned at the DCMS hearing was the Fletcher report more than once. Some people knew about it, some people didn't. We'll ask uh, Dr Tom Fletcher in just a second um, if uh, he was surprised at that or not. But uh, very good to have you on the podcast, Tom. Did that surprise you that in the House of uh, or in the DCMS Select Committee, your report was A, mentioned, and B, uh, the outgoing chairman had no idea what it was? Very surprised that it was mentioned. Not surprised at all that nobody had a clue what they were talking about. I, um, I, I was surprised that the chairman who had been in post undergoing a racism investigation hadn't actually looked at what the club had been doing. I think that, that that's the... <clears throat> That's the disappointment, really. Not so much that people at the top end of the organisations didn't know that the work existed, because I guess work like that isn't really aimed at their level anyway. So they're normally practitioner level. It's normally practitioner level stuff, um, community based work, uh, not necessarily at the strategic level. Though, if I was going in front of a select committee hearing uh, accused of institutional uh, racism, perhaps I might have gone down in 
to the lower echelons of my organization and said, what do we know? What, what have we done? What mm. are we doing? Yeah. Has the last few weeks, I mean, I've been talking to Azim for 16 months as we try to get his story out there, but has the last few weeks when it's really caught fire, has it surprised you? I th- it surprised me, I think, the nature of, of, how, it, of how, it's ch- how the narrative has changed and so quickly. You know, I've not been in communication with Azim throughout that process, except I was approached when they were making the original um, testimonies and asked to provide evidence, for instance, which I had to decline because I've not done work on Yorkshire County Cricket Club and I've never been in the Yorkshire County Cricket Club dressing room. And so my response to that approach was to say, listen, I can tell you about my work on Yorkshire cricket, but it's entirely unrelated or what perceived to be entirely unrelated to the kind of institution of, of Yorkshire County Cricket Club. So I think that in itself, the fact that everyone was so, not say silent on it, but it was just kind of bubbling away under the surface. It's only really come to light when MPs stepped in and said, what's going yeah. on? And then we see it, it was when the changing narrative, don't we? It was when they um, put the quote out there that uh, the the P word was banter, yeah. wasn't it? And that's what caught fire. Yeah, uh, and, yeah, and I, and, I, and I think that that's a, it's a really important kind of turning point. That because I think you know probably fifteen years ago, if Twitter didn't exist and people weren't con- you know constantly kind of barraging and putting these the, these kind of um, sound bites out, I think this story might have gone away. You know, I think it was only because you could get that out there, you could share it, you could tag in the right people, and then once those right, once those people then have a voice on it. So once Julian Knight says, "Hang on a minute, what's yeah. going on here?" and people think, "Oh, you know, we're going to have to look into this in in greater depth," then we've seen a complete step change, and and that is that is significant because up until that point, the silence was deafening in that respect, and it was quite clear that nothing would have happened if we'd not got, um, you know, greater powers, I guess, showing an interest. I've said a few times this week that I think that cricket doesn't take racism seriously unless it either threatens to embarrass them or it's going to um, cost them money. And I guess off the back of what you've just said, there's a third one there, unless you can make some political gain out of it. It's a really interesting point. And I mean, we, we've, you know, in other work that we've done, whether it be cricket or other sports, and, you know, you ask, if you ask that same question around, do sports organisations take racism seriously? The amount of people at high ends of organisations have said to me, yes, they do, when commercially it matters. Yeah. So if you've got a player that you want to keep, but he's been racially abused, then you start to look into racism because you want to keep that player. Uh, and all that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, someone asked me about this earlier on in the week in terms of what's the, I suppose, what was the t- what was my take being on um, the ECB's position around racism? And my view has been to say, I've, I've always been disappointed that over the last 18 months, when other sports have shown real outward signs of solidarity with Black Lives Matter, et cetera, yeah. the ECB have been pretty quiet on it. And we've been and have been very ambiguous in the way that um, you know that that solidarity has been expressed, and so I don't think they've ever really said this is how we stand on things, and this is you know this is our take, and this is what we're going to do about it. This is you know that these are our values. I don't think they've ever really come to the fore over the last eighteen months. 
I yeah, I, I agree. And I think I mean they took the knee, I think, once um ahead of yeah, the, the West, West Indies test. Yeah. And then they then they stopped, didn't they? And although there seems to be some kind of drive within the England team itself to stand up for the right kind of principles, um, wearing a t shirt doesn't really solve racism, does it? No, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, th- this is, you know, it's that, it's often bandied around this idea of gesture politics, isn't it? Mm. You know, it, it's, a, it's a sign of solidarity, but with, with, with little action. And, you know, symbology, in it, symbology itself is really important, but it has to be aligned with, <clears throat> you know, meaningful strategy, meaningful actions, meaningful uh, and meaningful changes. And I think, you know, uh, there are quite a few people at the moment saying, well, you know, the UCB have got a, a diversity an inclusion strategy and we've got a South Asian engagement action plan and this and that, but what are we actually doing with them in that respect? It's all well and good having policies in place, but how are you implementing them and how does the values of the organization, how are they, you know, how do they, how do they, you know, move like osmosis through the culture? How does it manifest itself in grassroots cricket as well? Because what's come really clear in the Azim Rafiq case was, you know, clearly this was more, than about his experiences at Yorkshire Cricket. It's very quickly moved from being a, a kind of crisis of leadership to a crisis of culture. And that culture is something that is, you know, dissipates throughout the institution of cricket. So it goes to every single level, doesn't it? And, and I think that's, you know, that, that's where that kind of gesture politics needs to be put to one side and meaningful action needs to be put in place to really understand what's going on. Sam's asked on the on the Twitter, and I know you know Sam because I saw your messages messages to Sam last night. You know, such been over fifties team, I think, in a few years yeah. off the back of that Twitter conversation. But Sam says he'd be interested uh, in your personal experiences. Um, he says we had some very talented Asian players in our teams. At what point does it go wrong? Um, Bradford League culture, old school coaches. At various times, there's been a lot of contracted Asian players. Why not now? I mean, that's a massive question. <laughs> It is, and I, and I know you know one of those players that that I think Sam will be referring to has is is one of the people that did speak out to say you know as an as an academy player, they never felt like they belonged. Uh, they never felt that they were able to take risks because if they got out playing a so called p word shot, you know then then their kind of um, their careers were on the line. And 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 we we shouldn't we shouldn't discount that that sense of non belonging. Or that precarity within within that environment, because I think that 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 kind of underlines everything that Sam's asked there in, in terms of you know what's going wrong. What's going wrong is that we don't have a system which is equitable. Now that goes from you know people being picked up at club level to invited to trials, uh, being I suppose given the benefit of the doubt at a trial if perhaps they didn't have their best trial. Whereas we know certain players, it didn't matter what how they trialed on the day, they were going to get in. And then when they do get into the you know, when they do get into that environment, so whether it be in a junior team or an academy setup or something else, that their experience is valued mm. because it doesn't matter how many people you have within the system and say, oh, look, you know, we've got 10%, 15%, 20% of people are ethnically diverse. If they're having a really crap time of things and if they don't feel like they belong or if they feel constantly undermined, then even if, you know, they will take it upon themselves to move out of that environment as well as kind of being given the chop naturally by the system anyway. Hmm. Tim's asked on here, um, you've obviously done some work with Yorkshire Cricket. How how did they, how receptive to that work was, uh, were they? Because 
I guess, I mean, what we were talking about before, really, ticking boxes and having equality statements is one thing. And obviously showing you've done some research into that adds to that kind of pedigree, doesn't it? But did you feel that they took it seriously? Was it well received? No, I think it really was. And and this is, you know, it's really important to put on record, to be fair, that I think the, the problem at, at Yorkshire that has manifested itself over, you know, however long of the last few days where it's kind of really come to light is, you know, we've had an issue around leadership and we've got an issue around dressing room culture. And there is, you know, pe- people would argue that there's a, an issue with the coach and the diversity of that. And, and But at the at the very grassroots, in the kind of development work that mm. Yorkshire are doing, so within the foundation, with the Yorkshire Cricket Board, there's brilliant work that happens there. You know, re, you know real... And, and real endeavour to diversify the game, whether it be through hosting refugee teams or hosting interfaith matches and all that kind of stuff. And that was where the work that we did for Yorkshire, that's where it was meant to be. It was informal cricket, it was amateur cricket, and it was very much about how do we engage with South Asian communities that don't play in clubs and don't play in leagues. So these kids and you know, for argument's sake, you know, taxi drivers, restaurant workers who don't have the time to play, you know, 12 to 8 o'clock on a Saturday because that interferes with work. Like many of us, you know, many of the people I used to play cricket with don't play anymore because of family commitments or work commitments, etc. It's no different. But they want to know how do we engage with them? How do we enable them to play cricket? So whether it be in parks, back streets, etc etc so and that work went as far as i understand was was went down really well because it it helped connect with and understand the barriers that those groups were facing but that work was never meant to go any further it wasn't about pathways it wasn't about talent identification understanding the system and recruitment and finding the next best player this was about how do we ensure that people who want to play cricket get to play cricket yeah. And that was and that was all that that work was ever meant to do. And I would defend staunchly, you know, the people that are working at that level because they they do excellent work at that level. I've said I've said all week there's some very good people at Yorkshire Cricket that shouldn't yeah. be tainted by what's happened over the last three years. But yeah. um, you mentioned taxi drivers. There. I mean, I, I live in Bradford. I, I get everywhere by taxi at the moment and I tell them what I do and they are madly passionate yeah, probably 99 out of 100 of them. As soon as you mention cricket, they're off. And they're yeah. talking about Pakistan cricket team. They're talking about um, Harris Ralph and the T20 World Cup and all the rest of it. You mentioned Yorkshire. and Have you ever been to Headingley? And generally speaking, the answer is no, because no. there seems to be a massive disconnect, doesn't there, between a really <clears throat> cricket-loving part of the community and Yorkshire County Cricket Club. You're absolutely right. And to be honest, that was one of the angles in the Yorkshire cricket study that we did that was one of the angles they wanted to know to say you know we understand we've got a you know a a community of people in and around Leeds Bradford Huddersfield Sheffield to an extent we've got a large South Asian community who we you know we believe are mad keen about cricket and you've you've confirmed that but why don't they come to Yorkshire matches and when you and when you there are a variety of reasons why not you know distance rally 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 but one of the things that all that really struck me through that project was people saying we don't go to Yorkshire because we believe it's a racist club and you would say to them why you know what did you know because at the time you know this was 2015 mm. actually you know representation was you know was okay you know there were various strategies within the community that were aimed around South Asian communities and you say why you know why do you think that this is this is the case 
and they would talk about historical events. So, oh, well, you know, when my dad went, you know, they experienced this and, oh, the, there was a Yorkshire-born policy up until 1992 and all of this. And you're thinking, this is almost 25 years ago. Yeah. But that legacy, that that legacy taints their view of the present. You know, they kind of, and, and you know, I've said for the last few days, you know, it's it's sad to think that when we were doing that research, that's how people thought and they were thinking of things, you know, over two decades ago. How long will it take to rebuild confidence now? You know, when you have something that is so public like this and and, and really chimes with the public imagination, have we just gone back in time another two decades? I mean, that's been why, despite being very sort of, you know, trying to get Azim's story out there, I'm a Yorkshire fan. I work there. I, I love that club. And I've had really mixed feelings this week, Tom, because there is that element of, we need to get this right and it's not right. It's obviously not right at the moment, but there's also that element of thinking, yeah, the, the trust that's been lost, if there was any, the trust that's been lost between Yorkshire cricket club and, and the South Asian community in those areas you mentioned. Yeah. That, that takes a lot of rebuilding, doesn't it? That takes a lot of kind of, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how you do it. I mean, you talk about people harking back 25 years. I mean, I'm fingers crossed, Pray to whoever you believe in. It's not going to be twenty-five years before we can actually make it make a difference. Yeah, I mean, th- this is the. I suppose this is the the, the million-dollar question, isn't it? Because if Yorkshire maintain hosting rights, for instance, if they reallocated hosting rights for international cricket, for instance, will people still go? You know, so commercially, you know, will the club all you know always be in the the brown stuff, yeah. or will or will there be a recovery? Because I think the vast majority of people who would go to an England match at Headingley will still continue to go. I can't see mass boycotts of Headingley Stadium based on, you know, based on this affair, for instance. And because South Asian communities are not the kind of target market in that respect, because they don't historically go through the turnstiles anyway, you know, you know, you kind of think, well, you, you, you're no worse off than, than you necessarily were. My worry and I've asked this of so many people this week and so far haven't got a definitive answer. A few, a few people have said, this is a really good question, I'll find out for you, is if, for instance, the sponsors pull out and we don't get them back, if we don't get hosting rights and, again, we lose the millions and millions of pounds, is the knock-on effect of that that Yorkshire can't do its community work? You know, do the work to engage and instill trust within those communities. So... Is it really a case of cutting off your nose and spiting your face? Or is there a set amount of money that is ring-fenced through the county partnerships, etc., that will ensure that the foundation and the board can continue to go into these communities, engage, enthuse, and and, and maintain that participation or grow that participation uh, among the diverse communities of Yorkshire? I desperately hope that it is protected and it is ring-fenced somehow because, let's be honest, if you have to cut costs, you're not cutting it from the first team. You're not cutting it from your coaching staff. You go further and further and further down the, the and it trickles down, and sadly, go and the first that goes is your schoolwork, your community work. Cricket's a game played with balls. You've got to look after them in the field. Badges are furry creatures. My friends at Manscape.com help you make sure it's neat and tidy down there. Oh. Get rid of all that excess fur. Make sure that you're neat and tidy. Make sure everything's in the right order. Oh, I'm feeling all good now down in this set. 
Oh, Manscaped.com. Maximum skin-safe performance, compact design, advanced engineering, ceramic blade, waterproof. And it doesn't end there. Show you care by caring for your pair. Cleansers, revivers, preservers. Simply go to manscaped.com. Quote the discount code BADGER. You get 20% off, you get free shipping, and you get some seriously quality equipment. Manscaped.com. Get on there now. Somebody on Facebook said, um, re-hosting rights. He says, many people, say he, could be she, many people that I have spoken to about this, and that is the drunken chants that have gone on that are racist and abusive. Um, that's what's put them off, especially as families. That, and that, I guess that um, comment is suggesting that's not just South Asian potential spectators, but I guess a lot of white people don't like that kind of atmosphere either. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, I took my kids to a couple of the Northern Superchargers matches over the summer, for instance, because I thought, again, just it was more around the spectacle, I guess, thinking there's music and, you know, bright lights, fireworks, etc. How, how old are your kids, Tom? Uh, eight and five. Okay, yep. Uh, and again, I thought three hours for 2020, the eight-year-old might sit through yeah. it, the five-year-old, no. That extra half, that reduction in half an hour, that's the, that's the winner for me. And I booked tickets in what were described to me as in the all-stars area so both my kids do all-stars the ecb initiative and when i got the tickets through it was in what was the family stand in headingley so i thought no alcohol we're going to be surrounded by other kids with their all-stars gear on it's gonna be great for the cameras because the cameras can pan to them and go oh look here's the next generation of all-stars yeah we had to move with inside 10 minutes because one of my kids was crying because there was some buffoon behind us shouting obscenities at Jimmy Neesham who was fielding down at third man and I looked at this guy and and just turned around and said you're not the only person here to which I got you know some slather back but the bloke next to me then chunted away going oh he thinks he's at the football like that makes it okay Mm. but you know you you instinctively for me I instinctively bought us tickets thinking we would avoid that knowing that it will happen it's you know Wednesday at seven o'clock it's going to happen in the stadium but there wasn't and i asked the steward about it they said there is no alcohol free area at the hundred because it's not a yorkshire uh mandated event and therefore what is a non-alcohol space at a yorkshire match it's not like that at the hundred and i I just i couldn't believe it that we weren't creating these environments where my kids felt welcome I was stunned by that, to be honest, because you know, one of the few good things about the 100 that I picked up on was about introducing kids to the sport. And you'd have thought that if the ground had alcohol-free zones for other matches, they'd do the same for that, wouldn't they, as the, you know, as you went through. Going going back a bit, I mean, you, you, I know you've played cricket in local leagues and what have you. Um, described last night, I think, as a medium-paced trundler. Um <laughs> Um, you, I saw a quote from you the other day. Um, I think you spoke to somebody in the Indian press. Um, anyone who has played cricket at any level in this country knows very well that there is racism. Mm. This kind of language is so common. It's like white people <coughs> don't remember saying it or see it as a joke. I mean, that that very much chimes with what Azim's been saying about yeah, that's, that horrible term banter, that some people just pass off a horrible dig that is is racist as being a bit of a joke. Yeah, I mean, I would, you know, for for the people that are listening on Facebook or whatever, I, I would love to see, I would love them to say, to to kind of provide feedback on that because my my view would be to say in every dressing room that I've ever been in, 
I've experienced the kind of banter that they refer to, and it's not always racist, but it's often it, it, it often is. I would say, to be honest, in those environments, there's more misogyny than yeah. there is racism. I was going to say exactly the same thing. Absolutely, yeah. you know, maybe a few wisecracks that you would describe as homophobic, but it does exist, and I think anyone that says that it doesn't is in denial. I think what what is probably most significant about this at the moment is it how incredibly normalized and unremarkable it is to the extent mm. that that's why arguably some people can say, Oh, I don't remember. I don't remember that because it's just so normal that there's no particular incident that springs to mind. But yeah. I refuse to believe that, you know, other people in the, in the dressing room at any level, if you've got a player that says I've been racially abused, that there weren't nine people on looking and listening or just, you know, maybe inwardly challenging it, but very rarely outwardly challenging it. I think the thing, Tom, I mean, in the same way Azim has been saying, I've been speaking to quite a few people over the last 16 months about I don't complain or I haven't complained about my experiences. This is at a professional level because you're seen as trouble. You're seen as the problem then rather than the solution. You're the one that's kind of raised the issue and it's almost like you're responsible for that issue because Mm -hmm. you've raised it. And in the same way in, in a dressing room, you know, even as a white player there, to kind of step up and put your hand up and say, look, guys, that's that's out of order. You risk not being part of the unit, don't you? That, that's kind of the way the kind of team teams are built and teams work. Your kind of natural urge is to want to be part of the gang, isn't it? And if you kind of rock the boat, you start to become othered a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, I've, you know, I've never written about this, you know, specifically around drinking cultures for instance, because I've never drunk. That's not to say that I don't, you know, don't, you know, have a beer when the sun comes out, for instance, but I will stop at one. You know, I was never been one that goes out with the lads after the game and this, and, and this, that and the other. And, you know, most people understood that, don't get me wrong. Uh, it wasn't that I was antisocial or anything like that. It just kind of didn't fit within, within my lifestyle. And But that pe- people understood and, and people have understood for a long time the nature of the work that I do, and so the clubs that I've played for, for instance, in that time, and the and the friends that I've that I've got in that time, you know, some of them would probably acknowledge my sensitivities around these things because I've raised it and said, "Come on, you know that that we 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 can't be having that." Others would play up to it, and so I've had players that would say something just horrific, and then just say, "Put that in your book." You know, well, that just to, just to get a reaction from you, Absol- absolutely, yeah. and and you know, and that's the kind of culture of it. And I think this is where that kind of sense, that sense of banter comes from. That it's always in the kind of dismissive. Oh, it's just a joke. It's this and the other. Very rarely have I heard racism, misogyny, homophobia, etc., actually directed at somebody. I've not heard it on the on pictures. I've never heard it in a dressing room where we've had ethnically diverse people in there. People will not talk in those terms to those people but when they're not there and they're speaking to other white people there seems to be an assumption that if i'm talking to a white person then they're also racist if i'm talking to a white man they're also misogynistic if i'm speaking to a straight white man then they're also Mm. you know homophobic and they're not some of them are but most of them aren't and it's those that aren't that need to step up and say "I'm, i'm not listening to that you know, I don't. You know, I don't subscribe to your beliefs. Take your filth somewhere else. I also saw your comments. I mean, you mentioned it already, but the kind of very um, common in cricket is the pub afterwards, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. either going to the pub and then oft, often going on beyond that into the early hours if it's a Saturday night, um, and that just doesn't fit with 
you know, if, if that's kind of team bonding and that's getting people together, that doesn't fit with people that don't drink like yourself or who are of a Muslim culture who are, you know, they don't touch alcohol or they're not supposed to. No, and and again, this is where that kind of element of introspection comes, I think, because this this boils down to culture, doesn't it? This is not people, most of the time, I don't think, expressly prohibiting the inclusion of certain people. This is, this is the way we do things. Uh, and if you don't subscribe to the way we do things, then frankly, you can go and do something else. Now, I'm not saying that people shouldn't go and have a drink in the bar after a match. Most amateur, well, all amateur clubs rely on, if they have their own facility, they rely upon the income that they generate through their bar, for instance, for their own survival. And I'm certainly not going to, you know, condemn people for going out with their mates after the match and socialising because that's what they play sport for is amateur people. They go and spend time with their mates. My argument would always be to say we need to diversify what we offer. You know, if we want to be inclusive, we need to ensure that we're mindful of the things that we do and we actively look to promote the inclusion of, you know, of of, eth- of ethnically diverse groups. And if that means doing, you know, once in a while doing a team building exercise that doesn't involve that, then so be it. If we've got, you know, a, a team bar, if we've got a team barbecue or something, it's ensuring that we cater for that maybe, you know, a, in my PhD research, we had people say, why can't you just run a curry night? You think, that's heavily stereotypical, isn't it? It's like, yeah, but, you know, that's the, you'd be surprised. Mm. It's heavily stereotypical, but it sends a clear message, doesn't it? It's kind of saying, we've, you know, we value diversity. And it's just about doing stuff differently, but being reflexive and mindful of the communities that that cricket is serving. You know, it's it's not just a white, you know, a white sport, uh, and therefore, it's just really—it's about that kind of celebration of different values and saying, "Well, what can we do to include everyone?" My name is Jacob, and I sent the badger a message, and now I'm on the podcast with this jingle. If you would like to get in touch with the Cricket Badger podcast, then tweet at cricket underscore badger. I also saw your comments about fitting in, and either. Drinking, as a, you know, obviously talking about Muslims, there's obviously plenty, you know, plenty of other um, ethnic uh, groups as well. But um, if you're a Muslim, you either don't drink and you are othered <laughs> because you're not fitting into that kind of group mentality, or if you do decide to drink because you want to fit in, you then are filled with almost like self-loathing because you've kind of let yourself down and let your community down. There's there's kind of no win there, really, isn't there at the moment? No, and and I think that this is a, from the work that I've done, this is definitely a a, a generational issue when it comes to, you know, South Asian communities in particular, where you might have, you know, younger players who are still, maybe they're still kind of grappling with with what they, you know, how, I guess, you know, how staunch they are to their faith. Mm. Um, I remember one one lad as part of my PhD, I mean, so this is going back, you know, 10 years ago, and he said, I treat religion like a sieve, you know, so I pour it all in at the top. Most of it trickles out, but the big stuff is still, you know, is still there. And he said, so things like drinking, things like, you know, d- you know, dating, uh, you know, white women, etc. Th- these were things that kind of trickled through. They were things that he allowed himself to kind of experiment with. But then when you kind of revisit those issues with, um, you know, with this same person 10 years later, 
and you can see there is a, a real kind of shift change in the way that he you know adopt to the to faith etc and it's very much a case of saying you know i've learned who i am you know i've gone mm -hmm. through you know i've gone through that i've kind of trialed it i've experimented uh, I, th I think Azim's, Azim's gone through that exact same process. Yeah. He's, he's talked this week about drinking with the lads and going out and going out late and doing all kinds of stuff. And then in his second stint, grown up a little bit, matured a little bit, decided that he wanted to be a good Muslim, go back in there. And then he found the experience different because he wasn't then fitting in. Yeah, and I think that comes, you know, don't get me wrong, you will have a lot of people online saying no one forced someone to do that. You know, they, they have their own agency. They can make choices for themselves. And, you know, I sympathize with that view, don't get me wrong, because I would like to think that we that we all have autonomy. But I'm also very, very mindful that some of us have privileges that allow us greater autonomy because, you know, in pretty much every environment that I walk in, there's people that look like me. And the way I do things is pretty much mirrored by everybody else. I would never choose to be in the minority and i don't think you know many people would and and so in in the case of someone like azim or any i mean this you know this is the same as this is mirrored at any level of cricket or any level of sport if you are the odd one out what is the easiest way to fit in it's to do what everybody else does and i think when you're in a professional sport environment where you feel precarious anyway because you think oof i've had to work doubly hard to get here i've had to be doubly you know, as good as everybody else, then the, when the stakes are so much higher and it's not just a case of fitting in because anyone can move to another club, can't they? When it's your livelihood on the line, you know, so many people I spoke to, you've just got to toe the line. At any cost, you've got to toe the line because otherwise they don't need much of an excuse to get rid of you. I, I always think when you actually boil it down, Tom, life's quite simple. I always think with um, with on this subject, when you look at other cultures and you look at uh, how different cultures operate and they have their own identities and their own ways of doing certain things, it's about appreciating that and actually admiring that and liking that and getting to know that and understanding that and being, yeah, not necessarily being part of it, but actually kind of coming to comprehend what makes people tick. And that's, mm -hmm. to me, what makes life quite interesting, that people are different. And, you know, it, even within white people, people are different. But obviously between cultures, you know, the term culture obviously suggests yeah. that people are very different. Is it as simple as cricket clubs and professional sporting organisations having that same kind of ethos where it's about understanding people, maybe adapting to other people, and just enjoying other people and making them actually feel part of the fabric. Because to me at the moment, I mean, when I worked at Yorkshire, it was very much that um, people would refer to the Asian population in Bradford as potential revenue streams and ticket buyers rather than as people. It ch it shines with my, you know, my own employment. You know, we're re referred to as resources a lot of the time. You say, we're not a resource, we're people. And so... And, and the, this is it is ultimately what it boils down to. But you have a culture which is within within cricket. And I think that, you know, Yorkshire is Yorkshire is an outlier as well. There are, don't get me wrong. There are other county identities that are kind of hard to fathom as well. But people in Yorkshire, you know, in, in some ways take pride in being a bit different, a bit more outlandish, a bit more. Yeah, a bit more tongue in cheek. 
there is well, that kind of like I, I I say what I like and I like what I bloody well say kind of attitude, isn't there? That's exactly it. And you know, yeah. I, and I, I've always joked with people that kind of say things like, "Oh, you know, in, in the the summit in the water up there." They talk about you know talk about uh, Barnsley, where I'm from, and I would I would just respond by saying, "Say I'm from Yorkshire. I like gravy and I don't like change." And I think there is a degree of that that sense mm. of not liking change that. You know, this is the way things have been and they've been like it for this long and we like it like that. And I'm not saying that that is something that is unique to Yorkshire, but I think there is something about cricket which is probably a bit more uniquely conservative than other sports. And I think that that feeds through the culture as well. And whilst you and I you know, can say, well, it just makes complete sense, doesn't it, that you should learn about all of the people in your club and ensure that you provide a space where they feel welcome, the families feel welcome, and they feel valued because, well, that's just the right thing to do, isn't it? The amount of people I spoke to for my PhD that said, do you know what, if we had a night out and it didn't involve drinking, I wouldn't go. I think, why not? Yeah. Why, why, can't, why can't for that one night, let's say one night in four or five, where we're actively doing something to include everybody, why does that offend you? I am speaking to uh, this. This dates back a long time in Yorkshire. They've talked about institutional racism and and there have been elements of racist behaviour on the terraces for quite a few years. And people, um, you know, going back to the fifties, sixties through into the eighties, somebody was saying to me the other day about Somerset and Joel Garner and Viv Richards took a real pasting at Henley one day racially, and complaints were made to the um, the then chairman and nothing was done. And it seems to me that all the way through this process, nothing's been done. And the tone's not been set at Yorkshire. They've, they've not actually made a a really big statement that this is just not acceptable here. If you're, if you're going to behave like this, then you are not part of what we're trying to do. So, you know, kindly clear off kind of stuff. It's kind of been, well, that's not right, but let's, you know, he's bought his ticket. Let's just leave it. Do you think that that's any different in Yorkshire to any other county, though? I'm sure it's not. I, I think this is, in various ways, the same everywhere you go. Mm. And I think, but because I think that that is such a crucial point, isn't it? And that, you know, I, you know, I listen. A spade's a spade. You know, where, where I come from, you know, we are, you know, we're honest to the point of almost incriminating yourself. I used, I used um, to live in Barnsley. I know yeah, absolutely. Like... <laughs> you know, we, we, don't, we don't mess around when it comes to you know telling people how it is. But I'm also very, very sensitive to ensuring that we don't suddenly say that, you know what, we've got a problem at Yorkshire County Cricket Club and let's you know hold them over the coals and we've done our job. Because it isn't. We're just, in, in a way, we're just kind of, we're in a position where someone has opened Pandora's box and Yorkshire was the first to be noticed. Mm. And yeah, there are clearly issues, but like we say, it doesn't extend throughout the organisation to every level. There are good people everywhere and there are awful people everywhere. It doesn't excuse it, but the problem is a cultural one because if, you know, that dressing room culture is allowed to exist because at 15 years old, when kids were going into, you know, first team dressing rooms and playing with other men that culture existed there and they've taken that culture through everything as they've progressed through that system and it's remained unchallenged it can't be a surprise that when they get into that professional dressing room that that culture exists 
Why is there such a difference, Tom, between the level of participation and cricket lovers on the grassroots level in Yorkshire? I mean, I've, I've seen stats, was it 30% um, Asian at grassroots level? And yet it's more like 3 or 4% when you actually get into the professional level with cricket. Is that because it's a white controlled pathway? Is that because there is that mistrust? What, what's the what's the different? What's the problem? That's the question, isn't it? Yeah. That, that's what we need to uncover because, you know, we what you know we we've done work where we've asked, you know, particularly within the coaching pathway, and I, I've said all along, you could replace the word coach with player, and I think you'd have the same story. Yeah, and you know that that's exactly what has been told to us say so the pathway is there to facilitate the progression of some namely white people but not others now there are various mechanisms as to how that happens so it may well be all of the coaches are white and therefore you know because they don't understand that diversity because they don't understand why you were absent from that training session when you say it was my grand's birthday and they're like Phew, well they've chosen not to come then whereas you say well actually family is so important within our culture within our faith etc etc or i couldn't get that day because of x y and z or there was this particular religious festival or do you know what i'm fasting and actually i'm really but, struggling with it all of these things that, that's adil rashid at lords there was a massive controversy when adil rashid um, chose to go home <laughs> rather than play in a crucial championship match and he was going to see his very sick grandma because he knew he was going to be going away shortly afterwards and he didn't want to not see her before he left which is, was very, very important to him. Well, you imagine th- there's been a, a change in narrative around, you know, players taking parental leave, hasn't there? It's mm. a similar thing in terms, you know, 20 years ago, can you imagine, you know, Joss Butler going home from a, from a you know, I don't know, was it an India tour? I don't know, like a massive tour yep. in order to be there at the birth of a child. You know, you've got your traditionalists going, it'd be right, just get a photograph. You know, and that's the kind of change in that kind of change in attitude as we've become a li- perhaps a little bit more liberal and a little bit more kind of accepting of you know diversity as you've gone through the generations. But you know, I think that there is a that there is, obviously there is something that's happening. I think it, in the work that we've done, it, it has boiled down to a perception that the system is you know imbued by a culture of whiteness, which manifests itself in lots of different ways. And that that culture of whiteness ensures that white people have greater opportunities. They can leverage those opportunities much easier than others. They can navigate the pathways. They're understood. They're given the benefit of the doubt, and the, and and they manage to they manage to progress through a little bit more easily. Now, for me, we need to understand the perception of the people who are making those decisions and say, "You've got this many people coming through. Why didn't you choose them?" And don't get me wrong, they'll probably just say, I chose the best players. So are you telling me that out of a third of all the players, how come only 10% of that third actually make their way through in comparison to the, you know, disproportionate amount of white kids? Yep. There's something going on there. I saw, I saw your, um, your work had involved looking at how Asian coaches weren't getting their opportunities because they had kind of a slightly different ethos with cricket, whereas the English kind of traditional white um, play in the V, play straight, you've got a graft son and all this kind of stuff. Whereas the, uh, the more Asian way of looking at it is bowl as fast as you can, spin it as big as you can and um, hit it as far as you can. Yep. And that was holding yeah. them back. Yeah, and, and I think it was because there wasn't a culture there wasn't a culture of having been coached. So mm. there wasn't a, a value attached 
to the idea of coaching in the first place because it was we just learnt in the back garden or we learnt in the streets and it was through imitating someone that I watched on the TV and it was a case of I'll bowl as fast as I can and then I'll learn how to control it. I'll learn to hit it far, but then I'll learn to hit learn to hit it on the ground, that kind of thing. But that style of, you know, not playing a particular way because it wasn't coached, because those people who were the selectors and the coaches, they look at that way of doing it and say, well, I wouldn't have taught you like that. You know, and, the, and anyone who's been through a pathway at Yorkshire or any other county will know how many times someone has tried to tweak what you're doing and you come out being worse than when you went in. Yeah. Uh, and then you revert back to the way that it was and you start to perform again. But I think because, as we said, because that kind of Asian way of playing, it's very subcontinental, it's very, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's they refer to it as being more natural because it wasn't coached. It was more flair driven. It was about fun and enjoyment and just performing as opposed to the rigid, you know, defend your wicket at all costs kind of scenario, but it just didn't fit with the ethos. I think it would have done me no no end of good, that kind of approach because I got very bogged down with trying to play straight and stuff. And, I, I actually felt that held me back in, in the long run. Now, you know, a coach to actually say, go out there and just smack it as far as you can would have actually done me no harm at all, I don't think. Um, I, rem- I, remember, I remember a parent for a match. We were playing a representative game in York somewhere and I overheard a parent saying, Do you know, Tom Fletcher would make it if he was three yards faster. Oh, yeah, just, just like that. I'll just go and put on three yards. But I'm, sure, I'm sure even Darren Goff and Fred Truman would have fancied having three yards more. Yeah, and you think, well, yeah, but I was taught to control it. That was the way. Be miserly, don't give mm. anything away. You know, whereas the opposite side would have been bowl it stinky fast and then figure out how to put it in the right place. Yeah, I know which one I would have preferred in hindsight. Had a couple of comments on. Sorry, I can't I can't read your names. Hattie was the person that uh, contacted us earlier. So hello, Hattie. I know Hattie. Um, the this interesting one here, and I know I'm. We're up to almost 45 minutes, and I only said 45 minutes, but if you're all right to stay another 10, yeah, that would be going, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a um, couple here that should good. Um, would it be good to have a sports psychologist or a mentor sort of buddy scheme to actually help people navigate this kind of issue? Absolutely. In, in a lot of the work that we've done, they do talk about the importance of how, uh, and I think this works in any kind of employment scenario, really, uh, of having allies, allies that know the system, they know who to contact to get the opportunity because what you tend to find is you know it's always through word of mouth someone knows someone you've got access to a network you know dad played this mum did that Mm. such and such knows somebody else that give you the benefit of the doubt give you a trial because asian communities and other ethnically diverse groups because they don't have that kind of pedigree of it's because Asian communities haven't been through that system because they haven't gone through the pathway and they don't have the pedigree of it and haven't built up that kind of bank of contacts. If they want to get a trial or they think that their kid is good enough or what have you, it's that sense of, well, where do I go? Who Mm. do I present my child to? (laughs) You know, which club should I go to that have got the best connections where, you know, which school do I go to that have got the best facilities, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it just turns out the white community have access to these networks because of that pedigree and that longevity. So having some sort of buddy to help navigate the field would be very useful. Yeah. I just, just kind of underline that and nothing against Chris Cowdery he helped me out. No ends. He gave me an interview for a book about fathers and sons and multi-generational families in cricket. But he said that when he went to the net, uh, net at Kent, obviously his father Colin was rather prominent 
Um, he said he played absolutely terribly in the net, but he got invited back the following week and back the following week. Whereas you would assume that if somebody went there that they didn't know, um, that maybe didn't look like them, had a horrible net, they probably wouldn't yeah. be seen again. So it's a, it's a different kind of thing, isn't it? The, the, the next point is interesting, I think, because I've, I've had this as a kickback a lot this week about white people and racism working both ways. I've read Michael Holding's book where he says, you know, this isn't just a white against um, you know, brown kind of issue or white against black. It, yeah, there is there is the reverse racism. And this gentleman's saying, uh, as a white Christian, I missed a vital coaching session at 17. My captain at the time dropped me for two games. Obviously, that was 25 years ago, but the excuses were shocking. So there are people that have had, and that obviously goes back to what we were talking about, about religion and, and family being important to Asian communities. It's obviously important to white people as well. But how, what would you say to somebody that says, well, I'm a white guy. I've had a, I've had a, a person of colour attacking me. So what, what are you talking about? It works both ways. Yeah. I, I remember playing against the Caribbean Cricket Club and being called various names that were related to being a bit pale, a bit vanilla, and this, that, and the other. And I think... Yeah, that's fine. You know, it's, it's like abusing someone for being rich, isn't it? Kind of, mm. And they just go, you know, what, what, there's not really, you can't really abuse me for being rich. That's the kind of privilege that I got in the same way as you call me a vanilla ice cream and you meaning it in, in a derogatory way. But how does that actually, there's no kind of legacy of, of inequality about being white. So you can abuse me for being white. The consequence is what? You know, I... I the, well, I, on that, I, somebody, still somebody, have, I still have access and privilege, irrespective. Somebody, I, I, I used the term white privilege on, on, on Twitter the other day. And white privilege, to me anyway, it means that you have all of the challenges that everybody else has in the world in terms of trying to get a job, getting income, having success. But as a person of colour, you also have the challenge of racism on top of all of that, rather than all the other challenges that you face. It's nothing, to, and people seem to interpret it as being about money. It's nothing to do with finances. It's about the luxury of never having to experience racism. And I said that on Twitter. <laughs> and somebody says, I'll take, I didn't take him up on this very kind offer, but he said, I'll take you to a part of Wolverhampton. You'll get your head kicked in. I, I, and I wasn't quite sure how to respond to that. Except that you have the, with all due respect, you have. In all likelihood, you're never going to have to go or live in that place in Wolverhampton, because as a white as a white person, you you know you manage to kind of leverage your privileges to get yourself a decent job, which allows you to live in somewhere that you perceive to be safer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know that there it's where kind of race is, you know, intersecting with you know class or poverty. It's like well, you know, you go to that place, you're going to get kicked in because you know it's full of angry disenchanted people hmm. you know and you tend to find that you're not going to get much diversity there because it's that kind of conflation of of, eth of being ethnically diverse and being poor isn't it let's round this off tom because you've got Go children that want your attention um but if i was to give you the the magic bullet and you were going to be um lord patel can step aside for a week and you can take over as the chairman of yorkshire county cricket club you can write the manifesto for change <laughs> at Yorkshire County Cricket Club. And actually, before I ask you that, you've got that already in your head now, the, the seeds of that. But we had an interesting discussion the other day about Yorkshire County Cricket Club being the club that set the tone on this. And that would drip down through the leagues to the grassroots level because they could see what was happening above. And that was, you know, the professionals are doing this, so we should do this. And then there was the kind of counter argument that it actually works both ways, that the grassroots have to take responsibility and, 
and it's the grassroots that provide the players that go up to the top. Yeah, there. yeah. It's it's a two way thing, really, isn't it? It is, and I think um, you know, for me, it boils down to you know, at the end of the day, I'm a researcher at heart. So what you know, what infuses me about my job is that I get to go and research things that I find really interesting, and I get to have fascinating conversations like this, and and you know, I get paid to do it more often than not. Not that I'm being paid now. I should just put that out there. No, you're certainly not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but. I would, you know, I would if I if I was if I was Lord Patel or if I was Tom Harrison or whoever is overlooking these organisations, my primary objective has to be to go and understand what's going on. Now, my understanding is that the ECB is going to produce what something like a twelve-point plan or something, and you think you've created a twelve-point plan through consultation with mm. what the people that sat in that room. I'd love to know the how ethnically diverse the people and, in the room were. And, and so, to a degree, Tom, the people that have got us into this mess to start with. So I would be saying we need to, you know, we need to not just react and do something just to be seen to be doing, i.e., we need to respond, what do we do? Here's a twelve point manifesto. I'd say, you know what? That's fine in the first instance because people need that confidence that you're taking it seriously. But actually what you need to do is say, we're gonna spend six months to a year really understanding what is going on at every single level of the game. So it goes from boards within county clubs to, you know, the players in the dressing rooms, to the people in the offices, to the people playing in the leagues. And you need to understand what is going on because, yeah, there will be shared experiences at these different levels, but there will be things that crop up at amateur levels that don't exist somewhere else. There'll be things that crop up, you know, in dressing rooms that don't crop up somewhere else, but there will be the same recurring things. And, so my view would be to say, do you know what? Obviously, I'd say ask Tom to go and lead a project for you. Yeah. But I think ultimately that's what it needs, though. It needs yeah. a proper deep dive. It can't just be and people. They'd, they'd say they probably haven't got time for that because they've got the House of Commons shouting at them to, we want to see tangible change now. Absolutely. But, I mean, cultural change doesn't happen overnight. And no. the problem that you've got, I think, is that you, you run the risk of implementing a series of changes which you then impose upon people that don't believe in them. So, you know, you, if you're going to build from the bottom up, you need to co-create them. You need to consult with people that are actually going to implement them and say, what's realistic? You know, what can we actually do? What do you think your players, your coaches, your spectators? I mean, oh, spectators, you know, we can't forget them in terms of their, them as perpetrators. You know, how, you know, what can we do that would actually be palatable at these different levels uh, that would actually instill some kind of cultural shift because otherwise you just have a 12-point plan and you get people to sign up to it and there's absolutely no comeback from, well, there's no, there's, there's no sanction anyway because no one's monitoring adherence to it. So he's saying that there was an ECB anti-discrimination code at the beginning of the season, which I know for the, on a professional level has kind of formalised any racial malpractice on the pitch and penalty points and suspensions and what have you. I don't know how how far that goes down into grassroots. Well, well last point from me, um, Tom, if, if I was at Yorkshire and I was in charge here, one of the things I was thinking the other days, because there are Asian only leagues in, in, in Yorkshire now, it's almost like cricket apartheid. They've kind of been so disillusioned with the, if we're playing with the white guys, they've actually gone off to be together effectively mm -hmm. and, and enjoy cricket on their own. I'd, I'd take Joe Root. I'd take a couple of high profile players without the cameras, without a PR um, perspective on this down to a game 
where they could, you know, not necessarily play in it because they might get injured, but coach and, and listen to and talk to these guys, actually get, you know, build some communication with these communities so that they can see that these guys, Joe Root is, you know, is interested in them. And Rooty can take something back with him to the club in terms of how, how he was taught to and what, what they said. Kind of creating those relationships which are more mm-hmm. off the record but actually tangible and you can actually get some benefits from them. I think having that, <coughs> inst- instilling that sense that the club actually cares mm. really does matter. I, you know, I'm not saying that a particular way of doing that is 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 better than another because I think most... Don't me wrong. I'm I'm not suggesting that Joe Root would be disingenuous in that role, but I think most people within those leagues would see through that and just assume it to be a a, a, a PR exercise. Now, what is it? I guess what is interesting in terms of say the Kadiazam League, etc., is that you know what? How long has that been in in existence? Thirty years. You know, this is not a new phenomenon. And within the last forty eight hours, have said we're not going to yeah. we're not going to sign up to Yorkshire Cricket Board or whatever it is. We're not going to be an affiliated league because we don't think that you care about us. Now, that obviously it's a strong statement. I, you know, the implications are significant, I think, um, not just from a PR perspective, but from a, a kind of logistical pathway perspective, development perspective. But yeah, you do, you have to mend those bridges for, you know, for certain. But as I say, this is a problem that has to be addressed at, at every level because there is going to be a lack of confidence. And I think that there's going to be a worry among some within organisations thinking, what what can I say? You know, I actually don't understand what a microaggression is. I don't understand mm. what, you know, what, what the problem is about using that kind of language. And can I say that? People need to know and, and feel safe in their, in their environment as well, because otherwise that who's going to be excluded from it? The people that they don't know how to talk to. Yeah. And there you go. They're the ethnically diverse groups, aren't they? Tom, I could talk to you for about another hour easily. I'll definitely have to get you back on the podcast as well further down the line and we can review Yorkshire's progress maybe as as we go further forward. But it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very yeah, much for joining me on the Cricket Magic Podcast. And, uh, and uh, yeah, good luck with all you do. And when you get that big research project, um, yeah, give me a call. I'll, I'll, I'll take some of the cash and help you out. Cheers. <laughs> I hope I've not destroyed your ratings. I really enjoyed it. So keep in touch. And uh, thanks everybody for for watching, for listening as well. Thanks for your comments as we've gone through too. And this will be available on Facebook, on Twitter and on YouTube um, over the, well, forever, I guess. Well, while the internet survives, it will be there for you. And you'll be able to hear this one later on today um, as an audio podcast in the more traditional, in the last kind of few years kind of way. Um, thank you, Tom, again. And uh, thank you everybody thank you. for watching Stroke Listening. We'll talk to you all again soon. Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.